What is up, everyone? Welcome into the latest edition of the Nesson After Hours podcast. It is presented by People's United Bank, the voice you are listening to inside your ears and head is Emerson Lazia, the other angelic voice on this podcast. Celia Godwin, please make a noise. Oh, man. Well, I'm here, um, back in Boston. Happy to be back in Boston, um, back at work, but it has been a very tough couple of weeks for everyone across this country. So, yep, happy to be here. Um, Happy to continue this ongoing conversation of race and racial injustice in this country um, and the issues that we face as a country. Um, So with that, I'm gonna go ahead and welcome in the two people that we have with us here today. Uh, Julian McWilliams of the Boston Globe, Good friend of the program, covers the Red Sox. Um, we have him on here. And we also have Jemai Webster, our teammate at Nesson. Sits right behind me in the same cubicle. Obviously not right now with everything yeah, you being guys six got a feet social apart. Distance. What six, what distance, six feet distance, social distancing <laughs> and involved. Um, but happy to have both of you guys on here today. Happy Absolutely. to be here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, anything to push forward the conversation, obviously, and, uh, you know, enlighten people about my experience. And I, feel, I think Julian probably feels the same way. So uh, happy to be on the After Hours podcast, that's for sure. Yeah, man, you're part of our team, both of you guys, man. We love you a lot. And uh, Jules, uh, I'd like to start with you. Just what has your emotional state been like over the past week since the death of, of George Floyd here and the protests that have been swallowing this country um yeah well guys thanks for having me i know this is a an important conversation usually we talk about sports and all that stuff but um there's more important things going on in the world and and i give kudos to you guys for bringing that to light uh you know the emotions for me has just been like sort of been really really draining you know in a sense where it's you know you saw the video um usually a lot of times i don't even look at those videos um because it's just you know it's just so toxic so mentally draining so physically draining um they ruin your days they ruin your weeks but for some reason i looked at the video and um at this point i wish i hadn't uh it's you know it's just goes to show the the uh injustices that you know my people have faced in this country um you know black people african americans in particular um uh, the you know you go to your mind starts racing so well it could have been my brother it could have been me it could have been my father it could have been you know, my uncle or, or even, you know, my niece. Uh, so um, see, seeing stuff like that just kind of hits your heart differently. And, and I don't know what, what it was about this one. It's just, um, it hit me a lot different in a sense where, you know, I, you hear him cry for his mother. Um, you hear him, you know, they said he went to the bathroom on himself and just all these just different, different thoughts of, of, of just, you know, how the black and black people in this situation feel sort of hunted. Um, and then, you know, you go to see the stuff on Instagram and Twitter and it just became so much that, um, it, it just became so mentally drained for me. You know, I, I look at somebody like my niece, she's out there screaming something like black lives matter and she's eight years old. And a part of me was like, wow, that's great. But then there was also a part of me that was saying that was dejected by that. You know, here's this eight year old black girl having to, um, affirm herself, um, in this country that her life matters. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's hit on a lot of different notes and a lot of different, um, um, 
things and, and, and seeing my fiance having, who's a principal at a school in Brooklyn, having to talk to her kids about it and, and, you know, them having mental health days and, and having black kids say, well, you know, we don't want to sit in a park or something like that because, you know, uh, we're scared to go to a park because we don't know if we'll, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you don't have your mask on, so you're arrested or something like that. Just little nuanced things that, that black people have to deal with on a day-to-day basis that um, really, really uh, registered with me within a different way and in a, in a negative way, in a sense. Yeah, Jemai, I know talking to you earlier in the week, this has been extremely taxing on you and your emotional state as well. And it's nothing new, is it? Definitely not. I mean, to kind of echo what Julian said, it's, you know, you feel a wide range of emotions. Um, Initially, it's it's madness, you know, frustration. Um, But you then you feel anguish and and you feel almost defeated and and you get this feeling of dejection because, you know, we've been through this before. Um, You know, I think the Black Lives Matter movement really uh, sparked the national consciousness when Trayvon Martin was killed um, back in 2012. So it's like, you know, how many more of these are we going to have to go through before people understand that this isn't okay? Um, so it felt like all that coming back into my mind and, you know, there's been numerous, uh, police brutality cases where, uh, black people have, uh, been killed at the hands of, you know, crooked cops or, or people who, um, you know, have character issues or, or should not even be on the force. So I think maybe sometime last week I saw a tweet that Chance the Rapper sent out with a list of these names. And it was all the people who had been killed by police, um, black people, people of color. And so I'm going up the list and I'm, I'm going up the list and I, I'm like, oh, I, well, I recognize that name. It's Walter Scott. You know, I'm going up the list, 20 more names. And then I see Tamir Rice and 30 more names. And I see Michael Brown, you know, and it's like, where was the information on all of this like the fact that and it made me call into you know it kind of made me call my blackness quote unquote into question a little bit because i hadn't known about these other situations they weren't as broadly uh, represented in, in news and on different topics like that where we get information but just the fact that there was so many it just kind of, it was such a depressing thing to, to witness. So this week has been a lot of that and, you know, bringing up all those feelings again, um, that just a couple of weeks prior, we felt like when Ahmaud Aubrey um, lost his life with his run in with, with a few people in Georgia, um, which feels like it was racially charged. Um, and we're still waiting for situation to, to, to be resolved and played out. Um, in the judicial judicial system, but I was thinking about this as well, where, you know, we see all these black lives being taken and, you know, you want to get the background and you want to get the history of, you know, how much is this affecting other ethnic groups? And it's disproportionately not even equal, not even close. And it's like, it makes you examine yourself and be like, why is this happening? And what are we doing to stop it? And I feel like now this Walter Scott tragic situation is just 
the tip of the iceberg um, about the issues that go on in this country and systems of racism that have been going on forever uh, to hold black and brown folks down. But now there's this great awakening, which is awesome to see, but also in the same token, as Julian mentioned, it's, it's like, why is this necessary? You know, here we are in 2020 and we're still having the same conversation that my grandparents had you know, in the 1960s, you know, that my dad had growing up in the 70s. Um, and here I am having it in a, you know, 40, 50 years later, you know, after legislation was passed, the greatest civil rights legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, which stopped people from segregating based on race, color, creed, and all that stuff. And, and here we are 56 years later, and we're seeing a lot of those same things play out because it's so deeply rooted in America. So, you know, I hate to go on a tangent, but that's just to answer your question, I think. No, I mean, the thing is, is that as you're listing those names, Jemai, and you remember those specific instances and, and what happened, and, and Julie and I were talking about this last night, is that there was so much outrage then, and it seems that there's even more outrage now with, with George Floyd and um, the changes that potentially we're seeing here with the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as just how our country is responding to it. Protest in every single state, protest in dozens of countries. This is a humanity issue. And it's, it's, it's here in this country and it's, it's all over. Today is Breonna Taylor's 27th birthday. She'd be 27 years old if she were alive today. And she still doesn't have her justice. You guys were kind of touching on how you grew up, growing up black in America. What did that look like for you? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it, I mean, I grew up in, in Harlem, um, which is a, you know, historically black neighborhood. If you go back to the Harlem Renaissance and everything like that, and, um, it's, it, it, you, you were taught black pride, right? I went, I came from a family where, you know, my grandfather was the, was the highest ranking, um, Colonel in, in, in the military. I mean, a highest ranking official in the national guard. He served two theaters of war, um, in the Korean war and, the, uh, in World War II, and uh, and then he came home, and this is kind of what, I don't mean to go on a tangent either, but this is kind of what bothered me about the Drew Brees comments, in a sense, is that my grandfather coming home from two theaters of war, Korean War, and, you know, World War II, is was completely different than his grandfather's, right, and um, it was, it's it's just a situation where he wasn't celebrated until, and, 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 and mind you, he was, he head of security for the National Guard and was headed up, Dr. King's was, was lead head of security for Dr. King's March on Washington when he had, gave the famous I Have a Dream speech. Um, but he didn't get his just due and his celebration until he was buried in, in, in you know, Arlington National Cemetery just outside of DC. Um, and at 97 years old, that's when the world decides to thank my grandfather for what he did for this country. Um, you know, but we grew up with a sense of pride. We grew up with a sense of, of, of hope. Um, but we also grew up with a sense of pain also. Um, 
you know, my, my niece now has Brianna Taylor, uh, you know, that, that happened in her life. She has, uh, a Walter Scott that happened in her life. She now has a George Floyd that happened in her life. And, you know, mine was Amadou Diallo. Uh, you know, mine was Sean Bell. Um, so, you know, it's these list of names that bring you back to your pain and bring you back to why you still uh, celebrate black pride. There's still this, this plight that you're constantly up against. And it's this plight of survival more than anything. And, you know, for me, um, you know, my, my dad did a phenomenal job, I think, just instilling in me a personal sense of pride about being a black man and growing up in society. You know, every time we'd leave the house, he, he'd always have this phrase. He'd like, hey, remember who you are. Um, and he'd be like, you're a strong, intelligent, uh, spiritual black man. And, you know, he would make us recite that when he dropped us off at school and, and just uh, reinforced the things that, you know, society wasn't telling us about ourselves. So I think that was instilled in him, you know, as a young age, too. Uh, obviously, growing up in these movements, being, you know, born in 1958, living through the 60s, living through the 70s. Um, and then my grandfather also fought in the war, too. Uh, he was like a medic. Um, and became like a registered nurse later on and, and, you know, help people after that. But, you know, you know, he fought for this country also. And, um, you know, they, our families or my family didn't, you know, let us forget these stories and their contributions uh, to this country and, you know, America's ideals and the, the, the hope and prospect that things would change. Um, so, I think that was, you know, ahead of his time. I think my dad was ahead of his time in that regard, um, just instilling that in us. And, you know, I think my first uh, really encounter when I, when I realized that I was different, you know, I wasn't white or I wasn't anything else because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really look at color. You just kind of grow up and, and you're kind of oblivious to these things. But when I was, I was thinking about this the other day, I was seven years old. I was in the sixth, the second grade. And it was the first time I had been called the N-word um, by this girl at school. And I don't recall exactly what the, you know, nature of the conversation was or what happened, what, what perpetuated it. But she did it and I told the teacher and it was just like, you know, wow. Um, like having to go through that and experience that type of hate was tragic you know it was uh traumatic and the fact that something like that can happen it was just mind-blowing so you know I grew up in the inner city Los Angeles I was born in LA I lived in Inglewood before my parents actually my dad had a phenomenal job so he moved out to the San Fernando Valley which is a little bit north north of LA a more affluent neighborhood um, but we were the only black family there uh, for a while. So this is like, you know, seven, eight years old at this time and living out of inner city Los Angeles. But my grandmother and everybody still lived in Inglewood, uh, which is right in the heart of the city. And, you know, during those times, it was like the, the, the 90s. You know, you think about the Rodney King situation, uh, Rodney King beating in the, the early 90s and some of the, the race wars that were going on and the, the rise of gang violence in Los Angeles. So there was this big, huge um emphasis on policing these neighborhoods right so it honestly 
you know, and I've never been to war, but a lot of times it felt like you were in a war zone, you know, whether you're dealing with your own people or dealing with police, um, there was this constant sense of anxiety that you grow up with, kind of knowing how to move in your neighborhood and, and how to, you know, maneuver being black, basically. Um, because going back to what Julian had said about how his fiance's kids at her school are kind of dealing with, you know, moving in society right now, you, you, you see these microaggressions, like you walk into a liquor store and all of a sudden all eyes are on you and you're like, well, why are they, you know, follow me around? I'm just grabbing a candy bar or whatever the case may be. So you hear the stories of Trayvon Martin, you're like, dude, that was me. You know, I was going to get brisk iced tea and a, and a snicker bar, some M&Ms and somebody could have done that to me. So it really, you feel like these situations have been your life in a sense, but you were just lucky enough to escape them, um, which makes you grateful, but also, you know, it's this great sense of um, anguish and anxiety that you feel walking through life like this. So that, and that's, that's what I think people are trying to articulate as best as they can what it is about being black in America, because you're constantly, you feel like you're under this scrutiny and this microscope with how you move in the society, a free society. Um, so that, that, that really goes into just the mental state all the time. And it's tough. So Jemai, how did you receive Drew Brees' comments about his take, his stance on athletes kneeling during the national anthem? Is he part of the problem and not the solution? I wholeheartedly, I believe so. You know, I felt like it was ignorant for him to say that because it just showed that, like, once again, he was missing the mark on the real issue that Colin Kaepernick started kneeling for in 2016, which was police brutality, systemic racism, racial injustices, prejudices uh, going against people of color. So it was never about the national anthem. It was just his time to exercise his First Amendment right. So it's like, you know, people had issues with the symptoms of the disease, but they never diagnosed the disease, which was all these systemic issues uh, as it relates to people of color in America. So, you know, you peacefully protest, people are upset with that. You know, then you start to get violent and they're like, you know, be peaceful, you know? So it's really, it feels like it's never really, any way to go about this but I felt like Drew Brees was ignorant in that regard and you know when when you want to speak on something or you get asked about something it's kind of your responsibility to inform yourself and educate yourself and he would have known that you know this has nothing to do with the military or disrespecting the flag um, or anything like that but you know people get caught up in symbolism and they want to Think about because you think about the his story that he was saying talking about his grandfather's like that's the symbol that it represents for him right but that's not in my mind what people who fought for our freedoms were doing to hold the symbol in this highest esteem it was about you know the rights for liberty justice and freedom for all you know it was the ideals it wasn't necessarily the symbol so i thought he was ignorant about that twice yeah because he's spoken about that before and then his third statement, it was much more contrite where he feels like he educated himself and got more understanding. But it's difficult to forgive him because we had this great momentum going and it feels like he gave people who are, on the, who are opposing this and who are in the opposition of this 
more fuel to the fire given his status as such a prominent figure in sports, yeah. um, which is a great unifier. So that was disheartening because it's now taking two steps back and you, you saw Malcolm Jenkins unfiltered response and you know it was painful, it, it was hurting. You know, there's been a lot of tears these last few days, a lot of times where you find yourself sitting quiet in solitude and just wondering if things will change. Um, and then a situation like that really, um, it really hurts because, you know, these are your sports heroes that you put on a pedestal, obviously because of what they've done on the field and the type of people that you, you think they are, but then they reveal not themselves, but they reveal some part of themselves that you don't like, um, or you don't agree with, which is kind of, um, it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, I don't want to judge Drew Brees on this instance. He's done a lot of great, but this hurt. Yeah, and the McCourty twins said the same thing. They called his comments a disgrace because their grandfather fought alongside Drew Brees' grandfather. Just in, like your grandfather In the said. war. Exactly. Jules, what can America learn? What can we learn from the comments that Drew Brees made? I think it's, it's, it's for one, it's a matter of um, empathy. You know, it's a matter of being allies. It's a matter of, an allyship doesn't just mean saying like, you know, stating the obvious, like, yeah, black, you know, lives matter. It's a matter of, you know, bringing this to a policy thing, right? Like protest, protests are great. Um, and I think bro protests bring awareness to a lot of things, but, um, you know, as Colin Kaepernick is pointing out, as Dr. King is pointing out, as, you know, Malcolm X is pointing out, as all the, these, these great black leaders are pointing out, at some point we need to get to a point of policy. We need to get a point of, of systemic change. Um, and a lot of that's going to happen through um, allyship and not necessarily the allies taking the lead on it, um, but being a part of the, the entire program of, of, of trying to end systemic racism, trying to, um, you know, put ourselves in a situation where, where we are, where, where blacks are, where blacks can be considered equal. Um, you know, and that's, and that's a, that, that, that's a tough hill to climb. And I feel discouraged at this point. Um, but I'm encouraged by the amount of people and the amount of awareness that um, many of us have, many of us Americans and people across globally um, have brought to this um, out of um, George Floyd, George Floyd's, um, you know, death, unfortunate death. Exhaustion, a lot. Um, like, like a lot of other people, just the, the feelings of the last couple of weeks, it's not new, but it's just exhaustion. But, but to see the level of protest and to see the level, uh, the amount of voices that are speaking out, does that make you feel like there's a change coming? Is there hope for that? I think absolutely. Uh, it feels like this is a beautiful time amidst a tragic situation in our society as well. It feels like there's this great awakening, people finally seeing that, you know, this is what's been going on. This is what's being, what has been protested for some years in recent memory and dating back all the way, you know, to the 60s and the civil rights movement and all that stuff. Um, the fact that there's this unequal justice um, for people and there are these systems of racism in place that need to be broken down. So for me, it feels good to see people taking notice and 
to be actively participating in the conversation, which I think has created the spotlight on the issue um, right now. And it's got this great momentum to what's going on. And I feel like for once in my short lifetime, you know, 34 years, uh, this is something that I think will, will provide a better life for my daughters for people coming after me. And, and even in some sense, I'll see some, some real change um, for how uh, policing is done in communities, for uh, how people are treating each other. And I think Julian hit it on the nail. Empathy is really the greatest thing that I think can be shown here because when you put yourself in someone else's shoes, you know, mm -hmm. anybody who's a reasonable human being knew that George Floyd was incapacitated, knew that he was not resisting arrest at that moment, knew that, hey, this man has been passed out for three minutes and you still have his neck. Like, I wouldn't want that to be me. I think people are looking at that knowing I wouldn't want that to be my father. I wouldn't want that to be my brother. And that's what makes you feel like this is not right. When you put yourself in that position and you realize that I wouldn't want this happening to me. So I think the empathy around the country has been great, around the world, really. And I think that this has garnered some real, real momentum and it's moving like a locomotion. So. I feel like we'll be seeing, you know, some legislation um, changing and allowing um, for some real change to happen in this country. How important is it right now, not just to listen, but to have white people like Emerson, like myself, speak out and help give that cause more? It's It's extremely important. I think it's like, going back to what I was saying before, like allyship and having allies is white allies um, is extremely important because I mean, you know, to just be frank, it's like you guys hold a lot of um, white people hold a lot of power in this world. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of how, um, you know, this world works, unfortunately, right now that it's that we're not equal. So I think you all speaking out against these issues, you all bringing this to light um, is vital for, all, for our development as a country, as, as, as you know, as humanity. Um, and you're seeing, like you said, you're seeing it, you're seeing it now. And I don't know what it's about this situation that's made it people just say, okay, enough is enough. I don't know if it was just because it was Ahmaud Arbery, if it was, then it was Breonna Taylor, then it was George Floyd, or if it was because the way in which George Floyd was killed, which it was like a slow death. It wasn't like a, you know, somebody just shot him which isn't which is inexcusable and the worst thing you can do in the world it was like this guy was looking into the, the to the eyes of the person filming him and was like yes I'm killing this guy but so what what are you going to do about it and it happened over a nine minute span and I think um the way in which he died um the way in which he died I mean, sort of motionless and wasn't putting up a fight um, just kept saying he couldn't breathe, just kept saying, uh, I, screaming out for his mother. I think that hit people in a, in a totally different way. And I think allyship um, in these instances, not just, it, not just with the George Floyd, you know, just, just not, just not it, getting to that point. It can't get to that point. Um, allyship in the workspace, you know, allyship in, in, in us trying, in African-Americans trying to get jobs and, and particularly you know, in my sport and baseball, allyship and African-Americans trying to become journalists. Um, allyship goes beyond us just trying. Now it's like, okay, we're trying to stay alive. But um, 
in the long run, we want this to be about us having the same opportunities, right? Um, I think Steven Jackson said it best. He said the difference between me and my brother was the fact that, you know, I had an opportunity. Um, and it just, it just goes to show what, how, how far opportunity can take you. And, um, you know, I, I think getting to all's points, it's, it's, it's extremely important to have the allyship of you guys. To go back to the diversity conversation, when you have seven coaches in the NBA that, that are black and you have three in the NFL, yeah. two, three, I mean, it's, what's the issue? Why can't we have, in a, in, in a league where it's a majority black and the underrepresentation at the higher levels, how does that change? I think it goes back into, you know, the systems that were put in place, you know, elevating, um, you know, some of the, the white people. It, it, it really, it's a deeper conversation, I think. It goes back to, you know, wealth in America and how that was acquired and what put these people in positions to get to the place that they're in. Um, and in the position of power where they're owners of these organizations, right? And they're making these decisions. Um, I think, you know, Martellus Bennett had a phenomenal thread, just kind of giving insight into some of the prejudices that go on in the National Football League. This was after Vic Fangio made his comments about that he didn't see any discrimination. And that kind of just speaks to the ignorance of, you know, having the veil over your eyes that you don't want to see or you don't want to be empathetic and experience what other people are saying that they feel. And that's part of the conversation. You have to listen to what people are saying and understand that if they are saying this, that this is what they are living, they are experiencing this. So um, I think there are many qualified coaches. There are many qualified people in executive positions who can hold positions of ownership. Um, but when the majority is what it is, those opportunities are going to be a little bit few and far between. So I think that is also an issue um, because they're in these positions of power. So right now we're seeing the change, you know, and there's three black head coaches in the NFL and four of color. If you include Ron Rivera, who's with the, uh, with the, with Washington. So um, there's 32 teams. Um, so I'm not a math person, but the percentage on that is low. And you, you mentioned the numbers in the NBA where the majority of these leagues are black players or, or people of color. And to not have those positions of leadership is, is also um, gross negligence, I think, as well. Um, which that's where you see the change. When you have these different voices, um, a part of conversations and, and you have people who are differing of opinions because, you know, that's when you see um, real discourse being uh, talked out and different agreements or di different disagreements um, being understood. So I think that's where the change begins, but kind of going back to actually something that I saw on Twitter, uh, Brandy Jeter, she tweeted, um, something that kind of really stuck with me. Uh, she's a, she's a, a writer at mama knows it all.com. And she tweeted, you know, thank you for your black lives matter graphic, Matt, please see a picture of your executive leadership team and company board. 
And I think, you know, when people start seeing those things played out visually and like saying, oh, we got white male, white male, white male, white male, or whatever the case may be, you know, if they look deep down within themselves, they got to understand this has got to change. You know, we got to have a change here because there's people of color in positions that can elevate to this level just as brilliant as some of these minds, if not better, um, just as savvy, if not better in these different arenas. So that's where the change happens. It changes, happens at the top. And um, when that happens, when we start to see that and equal opportunities, I think the world would be a much better place because you want different voices. Uh, you want different people around you because, um, you know, that makes you a better person and better overall understanding of what's going on in the world around you, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I think speaking out against issues of racism and injustice can can easily fall on, on deaf ears if you're leading a company that does not, and this goes for sports teams too, that does not prioritize hiring, promoting, or, or supporting black workers. I think you make a great point. And one thing I'd like you to touch on that I know Jules did was how important is it to keep this uncomfortable conversation alive and at the forefront of our minds? I took Uber a couple times this week to work. Both times I had black drivers and I opened up that conversation and that was difficult for me as a middle-class white guy. I have no idea what it's like to walk in your shoes and to deal with the injustice that you and the black community has to handle and face every day. But how important is it to keep this conversation alive no matter how uncomfortable that it gets? It's monumental. Um, it's no time to be comfortable anymore. I think these uncomfortable conversations need to be had and, and people need to express themselves. And I'll give an example to something that I saw on Instagram actually recently. Uh, it was this white girl. She was probably a teenager and she was having the conversation with her parents about racism. And they were ignorant to the fact that they didn't want to listen. And it, it was like, dude, she's educating you on what's going on. Um, and this, I think this video is going around quite a bit to people, but you know, everything that they said just kind of spoke to the prejudice that starts at home um, with some people. So for her to come out of there with her different mindset was just amazing for me to witness. But these are the conversations that need to be had. I don't think people talk about race. They kind of put it in that same um, category is, you know, you don't talk about religion and politics. Like it's a taboo conversation you get into, but it's one of those things that you need to have and you need to continuously have to create dialogue because when conversations happen, then action follows. So if people are uninformed and walking around ignorant, um, then they're just walking around blind. They won't be open or, you know, woke, uh, so to speak. Um, to what's going on in society. Because when you live in a bubble, you live in this vacuum, obviously um, you're going to be shutting yourself out to so much that is going on outside of the world that you know. So these conversations are paramount. Um, and really that's where it begins. And that's what protests are. People letting their voices be heard and getting people to take notice. I mean, just over the last few days, I live here over, you know, by JP, Jamaica Plain, and I'm driving through my neighborhood and I'm seeing protests pop up. The other day I was going to the credit union. There's hundreds of people in Rosendale on the square. And I'm talking about different colors, races, creeds. I'm seeing infants. I'm seeing babies in it. Like it brought a tear to my eye because people are taking notice. And imagine if you were, you know, you had been locked in a basement for 
five years and you come out to this world, you're immediately going to know what's one, you want to know what's going on. So I think that's the initial conversation and that's getting people who are oblivious to what's going on to take notice. Um, so, and that starts with words. So we'll see where it goes from here, but there's certainly, like I said, I feel a level of momentum that we haven't seen before. If this is the starting step, what's the next step? And the step after that, and the step after that. That's a million dollar question, I think. Uh, you know, and, and we haven't gotten past that, I don't think, before. Um, so if I knew exactly what that was, I would put it in practice. But I think and believe that it starts here with the conversation. Next, we've got to see real legislative change and changes within our departments as well. So, you know, how police are being trained, you know, how they're dealing with uh, situations of conflict and how they're resolving those issues. Um, because, you know, you can't let fear take you over in a situation that makes you do something and reactionary. I think going back to Philando Castile, who was killed in Minnesota um, in the car with his daughter in the backseat and his girlfriend, and he had a registered gun and he was telling the officer that he was going to reach for it in the glove compartment. The officer freaked out, lit him up right in front of his family. Um, so those situations, how do you resolve those? So I think it starts there. Then we get into a position where, I mean, you think about what the NFL was just trying to do just a couple of weeks ago with the new rules, trying to enhance the Rooney rule, so to speak, um, and make it so black coaches got more opportunities, people of color, but they tabled that conversation. So it's like, why do you table the conversation? This is an opportunity for you to do something and really enact change into your organization that is very low, lowly represented. Um, talk about the three black coaches, Mike Tomlin, Brian Flores, um, as well as um, Lynn with the Chargers. Yes, Anthony Lynn with the Chargers. So this is an opportunity to do something. And, you know, black people, we don't want the handouts, you know. We, well, that, no. that's what, sorry to cut you off, but that's what Leon Post said when we had him on the show earlier this week because he mentioned the Rooney role. And he was like, listen, I don't want to just be handed like a job because I'm yeah. black. I want to earn it for me. Exactly. And, but the thing is, because of the people in power and because of their ignorance and not seeing that there's these issues, we need that assistance. This comes to speak what Julian was talking about with allyship. We need people to speak up for us who aren't us. This is our fight to carry, and we've been carrying it for so long, and this is where we've gotten. So we need other people to take the mantle in that fight and assist us in trying to get those equal opportunities. So um, that's what I think something like the Rooney Rule would allow for, because you got qualified coaches like Eric Bieniemy, one of the guys, the Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator, who could have easily been a head coach. He had multiple interviews. So what happened? He's getting high praise from Andy Reid. He's getting all kinds of high recommendations from people around the league, but he didn't get an opportunity. So you just have to realize what's going on around you. And I think helping break down some of these systems, these things that put people in positions that 
you're starting already in life, you know, two feet back of everybody else. That needs to be broken because it needs to be a level playing field for everybody, um, which I think will enact some change and, you know, get up to the highest levels of government. I think that that's where in the end, that's where it needs to be. And it just needs to, our society needs to be more reflective of a rainbow um, in executive boards, in government, um, all over. And I think when we get there, you know, this will be something that, that'll be something long in the past that we discussed. That is definitely the hope for my children one day, for Emerson's children one day, for your children one day. Uh, Jemai, I appreciate you sharing your heart and your perspective and your, and your stories and you are heard and you are seen and, and you are loved and, and we love you dearly. Um, Jules had to step away uh, to do a work phone call, but we, we love and appreciate him as well. Um, these are conversations that have to continue even after the memorials and the funeral of George Floyd when this is no longer at the top of the news as the main headline. It's a conversation that has to continue. Yeah, um, we, we got to stay part of the, the solution here, ma'am. We definitely do. And we love you, Jemai. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate Absolutely. you so much for, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And, you know, I feel like, you know, this is an uncomfortable conversation to have and to get my experience. And, you know, at times I did get emotional talking about things because of the, you know, it's like when you go to see a therapist, you know, it's like, well, let's get oh, yeah. to the root of the issue. <laughs> and you start to dig up all this stuff that you feel and what you've experienced. But I think it's important to have these conversations. And I now, you know, I always felt the responsibility in my position, but certainly now more than ever to talk about these things and create awareness, because for a lot of people, this is the first time they're hearing about these things and, and seeing them because um, it hasn't been their, their experience. So, so thank you guys for having me. I yeah, man. Good for you. It. I can't wait to hug you, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when I see you in person, it's coming, yeah. whether you want it or not, jam, jam. <laughs> well, <you> know, <laughs> These days I need it, man. I miss it. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. Endless hugs just for you. Absolutely. Well, man. that's going to do it for us on this episode of After Hours, the podcast presented by People's United Bank. Again, thank you, Jemai. Thank you, Julian. Uh, and thank you guys for listening. We hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your weekend. <laughs>